If you will join me in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth this morning, we are finishing our series through the book of Ruth, and we will be in chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 22. If you're using the Blue ESV Bible, that is on page 224. The title of our sermon this morning is Redeemed, and our key words for our worshipers in training are child, birth, and restorer. Now, I wonder if you've ever heard about an invention. It's an invention that nobody wanted, and how it is that that invention became one of the best-selling office supplies of all time. Some of you may already know what it is. It's a product that you can find almost anywhere in the world, and it's usually on desks or on computer screens or on walls or on whiteboards. But in the beginning, it seemed like it was a product that nobody wanted, nobody wanted anything to do with, despite the efforts of the Creator. A man named Spencer Silver was working for the company 3M in 1968, and he was trying to create a super strong adhesive to use in the aerospace industry in the building of airplanes. But instead of super strong adhesive, he accidentally created a very weak, pressure-sensitive adhesive. 3M was, of course, completely uninterested in this. It had nothing to do with what he needed for an airplane. But the adhesive did have two interesting features to it. First, it could be peeled away without leaving any kind of residue behind. Secondly, the adhesive was reusable. It didn't lose its stickiness once it was peeled off. It could be put on another surface. Nevertheless, for five years, Silver tried to get the people, all of the higher-ups at 3M, interested in what he was doing, but had no success. Nobody had any idea, really, what could be done with this adhesive. Then in 1973, there was a guy by the name of Jeff Nicholson, and, and he was the one who made the products Uh, He was working in the laboratory at 3M, and Silver approached him with this adhesive, and he gave him some samples to play with. And at first, Silver believed that the best use for this would be to make a bulletin board. And on that bulletin board, you, you cover it with this adhesive, and then you have papers, and you can stick them to the sticky bulletin board and have them held up there without the use or the need of tax. But that never caught on. There was another, developing, uh, another interesting development, though, a chemical engineer by the name of Art Fry. He worked at 3M. He had heard about this adhesive, and he got very interested in it and how it could help him with the problem that he was having when he sung in the choir at church. He would sing using the hymn book, and as he held the hymn book, it always seemed that the little pieces of paper that he used to mark his pages were falling out or getting between the pages, so he couldn't quickly turn to the next song. So he had the idea to use that adhesive on his page markers to hold them in place. He suggested that all along they had the wrong idea. The adhesive didn't belong on the board. It belonged on the piece of paper. There were some challenges. Eventually there were other 3M employees that got involved, but the management didn't think that it was going to be any Uh, anything that was marketable. So they shelved it for a few more years. Later, 1977, 3M began test sales of a product which they called the Press and Peel. They sent it out to four different cities, but it wasn't very popular. So they just confirmed what they assumed all along. People weren't interested. But the developers didn't want to get up, uh, give up on this. So they went back to the marketing department and they said, send as many... uh, 
press and peel samples as you can to as many offices in one location. And so they sent them all to some uh, businesses in Boise, Idaho. And uh, after they used all their samples, the reorder rate was at 90%. So they sent pallets and pallets of these to all the places. This was double the best return that 3M had ever seen on a return investment in a product. So a few, la- a few years later, the post-it note was re- released into the United States. And so after five years of constant rejection, seven years of failure and rejection and marketing, finally the post-it note became a massive hit and it is now a mainstay in offices all around the world. You might have one in your Bible pages right now. Now, there are a lot of stories like this, and I love to hear stories about businesses, about inventions, things that came about through all kinds of processes and things that people never expected they were going to do. Remember, he was trying to create an adhesive for an airplane. He had no idea that he would end up creating one of the most popular office supplies that the world has ever known. I love reading how different businesses got their start, how these things happened, and a lot of the stuff that we use in our daily lives really happened by accident. But really, that's the story of our lives, isn't it? For most of our lives, our lives are very different than anything we ever thought they were going to be. The things we do, the things we encounter, very different from anything we thought. I mean, you probably have had a job, and that job itself, where you are now, is nothing like you expected it to be when you started. I know mine certainly isn't. I know, too, that when I was 10 years old, I had a plan. I had a plan of who I was going to be and what I was going to do. And part of that plan involved, in just one more year, you would be voting on me to be your next president. But you see, our plans don't always pan out the way that we thought they were going to. When I was a kid, there was no thought in my mind that I would ever be a pastor. I didn't actually know pastors were real people. But when I think about everything I did and everything I had going on in my life, things have taken a radically different path. I thank God that the things that I wanted didn't pan out in the way that I thought they would. Now, we're not all going to accidentally discover the next post-it note, but the point is that we just never really know what the Lord has in store for us. But one thing we can know for sure is that if we are His children, He loves us, He's taking care of us, He has the best planned out for us. And even though it may include some rough times, it may include some very difficult challenges, some very trying circumstances that might include seasons of suffering, it might include times of heartache and pain and turmoil, we can be assured that the end is better than the beginning. This has been a theme that we've gone through in the entire book of Ruth, and and really this is the theme of the Christian life, isn't it? We set out to do one thing, and often it turns out to be something completely different. And thank God for that. Again and again, we've seen as we've looked at the book of Ruth, it was God who was at work in the setbacks. It was God who was at work in the, in the first major character that we see in the book of Ruth, the old woman Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, when she lost her husbands and sons. It was God who was at work when Ruth came to her and said, For where you go, I will go. 
And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. This is one of the most incredible statements in all the Bible, an incredible commitment of this young woman who has, has, is now a widow herself. Her husband has died, and she's committing herself to another woman, to another people, to another land, to another lifestyle, more importantly than anything else, to another God. And, and then we saw over the last few weeks when Naomi thought she had come back to Bethlehem empty, He reminded her, God reminded her of a kinsman redeemer. And remember we said it it just so happened, is actually the language the Bible uses. It just so happened that Ruth went out to gather the grain for her and Naomi. And it just so happened that when she did that, she found herself in the field of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. Remember, Boaz took notice of Ruth. And he didn't only allow her to gather in his field, but he fed her. He gave her extra provision. He invited her to the table to feast with him and with all of his workers. And it just so happened that Boaz was that very redeemer related to Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. Boaz and Ruth very clearly had an interest in one another. And Naomi offered up her field to be sold so that her and Ruth could be redeemed through the sell of that property. And remember, we saw last week that Boaz went through this well-planned scheme to ensure that the other man, the other redeemer, who had first pick in all of this, who we affectionately referred to as Mr. So-and-so, he didn't end up with the land. He didn't end up with Naomi, and most importantly, he didn't end up with Ruth. He passed over this opportunity, but Boaz, Boaz is the one who received it all. And then we ended last week with the marriage of Boaz and Ruth, which was all based on that wonderful engagement and wedding ceremony we have all come to know and love, the passing off of another man's sandal. Through all of this, the Lord has provided the Lord has been there. And, and the point of the story, you see all throughout, the point of the story wasn't actually mainly about Ruth. Now we think it is because it's called Ruth, but the story was more about Naomi than it was about Ruth, wasn't it? The main story, the main literary thread through the story is about Naomi and about God's provision when someone thinks that it couldn't get any worse. When they're hitting rock bottom and there is no hope and they they turn around and it looks like there's nowhere to go for help. It really is an entire story about those two great words we often see in the Bible, those two words, but God. Now this story never says, but God. But that very theme, that's the theme of the whole story, the but God of the story. Naomi was in a strange land and her husbands and sons died. She returns back to Bethlehem alone, ashamed, no hope for the future, no one to provide for her, no one to protect her. And she believed in every way that the Lord had dealt severely with her and she was empty. But God, but God provided a loving, servant-hearted, hard-working daughter-in-law that was able to provide for both of them. But God provided a kinsman redeemer who would give them all that they needed for provision and protection. 
But God ensured that against all odds, the family legacy would be maintained and their name would be remembered forever. With Naomi, everything was impossible, but God worked it all out for her good. And and we'll see the cherry on top of this story this morning. Now, you and I both know the reality of what this story is telling us all along. The path to glory is not straight, and it certainly is not easy. It's often very crooked. Sometimes it's very lonely. Oftentimes it's incredibly difficult, but it does lead to glory. It does bring us home, and that is far greater than any path we could have laid for ourselves. The book of Ruth wants to teach us that God's purpose for this life is to connect to something far greater than ourselves. God wants us to know that when we follow Him, our lives mean far more than we ever think they do. For the Christian, there's always this connection between the ordinary things of life, sometimes difficult, sometimes painful, sometimes very challenging events in life. But this is the amazing work of God all throughout history. Everything we do in obedience to God, no matter how small, is very significant. It is part, no matter how small it seems, it is part of this great and glorious panorama that God is designing and developing and shaping and molding to display His power, to display His greatness, and to display His glory to the world that He has created and that He takes delight in. So you see, we learn in the book of Ruth that things like being faithful to your widowed mother-in-law and working hard to to serve her, and putting yourself out there in the hot sun in the middle of the field, giving all all that you've got to provide food, falling in love after being barren for 10 years, and then having a baby. All of these things for, for the Christian, they all mean something, and that something is far greater, far bigger than anything we would ever imagine. So what's the far bigger picture to this story? It's bigger than Naomi, it's bigger than Ruth, it's bigger than Boaz. What is this thread that ties it all to the rest of the Bible? That great cosmic story of God's great work of redemption from beginning to end in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the thread that ties it all together? Now we've said all along, this is the great Cinderella story within the bigger Cinderella story, right? We have, we have this man, this well-off man, this noble man in, in Bethlehem who comes and he redeems this lowly, poor, widowed woman that was an outcast of society because she was a Moabite. But we are looking at the bigger, the most beautiful Cinderella story that all of us Christians are a part of. The people of God united to Christ as His bride. So what happens? I'm going to do things a little different this morning. I don't have have three three points to go through. I just want to look at the text and think of this one single theme that runs through the final part of this book as we look at this great story And it all revolves around that maxim that we all learned as kids. First comes love, then comes marriage, and then comes the baby in the baby carriage. Casey knows it. She's on it. This is what comes in the end. So let's look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. 
Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Now, I absolutely love how this is written here. We understand in the immediate context that the writer is referring to Boaz as a kinsman redeemer and then uh, to the son of Boaz and Ruth who would now be a redeemer, a male in the family that the Lord has blessed Naomi with. He says, he has not left you this day without a redeemer. That's referring to their offspring, to the son. And it's a beautiful picture, right, of of this man, Boaz, who has come now into this family filled with compassion, and he's moved to, to give up of himself and of his wealth for their provision and for their protection. It's a great picture of someone dying to themselves, coming to the end of themselves for the good of another person, for the good of another people. And benefiting them, he set aside all of the concerns that we had talked about last week that would have come with, with him marrying a Moabite woman who was poor and who came with her mother-in-law, who came with nothing to offer, but he simply didn't care that it would cost him significantly in terms of financial expense. He didn't care that to redeem the land and to have Ruth as his wife meant that he would, that he would redeem Naomi as well. He didn't care that his new wife was an outsider, that in fact she was a woman who was despised as a Moabite, that he would be her husband. And he was going to great lengths to do so. Remember, time and time again, as he's explaining all this, he even said, Ruth the Moabitess. He was referring to her as who she was. And yet, what do we see? The people of Israel, they don't reject Boaz. They don't don't reject Ruth. They celebrate this marriage. They offer a blessing, even saying of their new baby boy, may his name be renowned in all of Israel. What a tremendous blessing. But more than a feel-good story, more than wonderful provision, more than even a story of God's providence at work in the lives of his people individually is the story of what's going on here in the bigger picture for all of us. But before we get to that bigger picture, we absolutely want to consider the details. The details of daily life. For Naomi, the emptiness of bereavement had now been replaced by fullness. Her, her bitterness has been replaced by joy. This child would have been regarded as the, the grandson of Elimelech and Naomi. And so her husband's name would not die. And his possessions would would have an heir. And now, just as in Boaz, but in her own grandson, Naomi would have a protector to look out for her in her old age. She has also still Ruth. So you see, in the small details, the ladies who were offering their blessings, they were right. The Lord has not left them without a Redeemer. The Lord cares. The Lord is near. Naomi had some really difficult days leading up to this time. Naomi had some very difficult challenges, but all along, the Lord was at work. The Lord was watching over Naomi. The Lord was orchestrating all the details of her life and Ruth's life and Boaz's life to bring them to this great end. What a joy. What delight they all shared. Now, I want to point something out. In verse 15, 
15, notice this very different kind of phrase we see there. The women said of Ruth that she is more to you, Naomi, than seven sons. What is that all about? That's quite a bold claim, especially outside the context of 21st century America. There's this cultural barrier that's being broken down here. When the text says that Ruth is better to Naomi than seven sons, if you know anything about the culture, you realize how incredible that statement is. First, the reference to seven, stun, seven sons is a reference to uh, what would be considered the perfect family. Seven is often used in reference to something that is considered perfect, and sons were the ideal. The people in this culture, in the ancient culture, wanted to have sons. They thought sons were far greater than daughters. I have daughters and sons. I want to refute what they say. This is the daughter-in-law. They're saying, this is the daughter-in-law that God has given to you and who has now birthed for you a grandson to the one who will be your redeemer. Upon her is the grace of God. Upon your relationship is the grace of God. And this grace is more satisfying, more fulfilling, more transforming than you having the perfect family. So in a culture where daughters weren't looked at like sons, where sons were considered better and and more blessed, they came back to Naomi and they said, no, Naomi, that daughter-in-law that the Lord gave to you, she was far greater than for you to have the perfect family. And there's a big thing going on here, right? We realize that if our lives are going to be defined by faithfulness and obedience to God, they're not going to be defined by the culture, and vice versa. If we aren't defined by God, we will be defined by our culture. And so for you, where do you find yourself in that? You might have a sense that you want to have the perfect family, and you'll kill yourself to try and maintain the perfect family, whatever that looks like to you. But when you have that smack in the face, that encounter with the grace of God, you realize, you know what? My identity doesn't have to be made up with making sure I have the perfect family. Because I won't and I don't. My, fam- my, my identity is not wrapped up in making sure I show all the right pictures on social media and make sure all my kids are eating and wearing and doing the things that everyone else is doing so it looks like we have it all together. Now, you know what? We are who God has made us to be and, and we need to live that out. You see, in God's grace, by God's grace, we are free from the cultural traditions. We're free from the ideas that the world is trying to define us by so that we would look like them. And and so life isn't about a perfect family or having seven sons or having a perfect body or having a perfect career or the perfect social calendar or being at the right parties or knowing the right people or whatever. The gospel comes in and breaks all of that apart, totally breaks it all apart and says, if God is in the center of your life, that's better than all of these things. Those things are not important, do you see? That's what the book of Ruth is about. This barrier-breaking power of grace, the power to break through these cultural barriers. It's amazing. It's amazing that we look all the way back in ancient culture and find this kind of book. We find this kind of people who are making these kinds of statements. These are things that people are talking about today and they just can't seem to figure it out. Look, the book of Ruth is so woke, it would be a New York Times bestseller if the world just took a minute to read it and figure out exactly what it's saying. 
by the grace of God. The very problems that we all think are problems today are worked out. How? By the grace of God in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, in the solution that God provides right here in the birth of a son in a small town in the Middle East. So you think of these women. They're showering words of blessing on Naomi. And look at what they think of Ruth. What do you think of Ruth? On the one hand, we have this woman who willingly left everything behind, where she was comfortable. In Moab, she had a name, she had a family, she had Moabite men who would have been willing to marry her. She had safety, but she left it all behind. And her biggest reason, because she knew the one true and living God, most likely because of her husband. She had to be with the people of God. She can't stay in Moab anymore. She knew the right thing to do in the eyes of the Lord, and she also knew it was the right thing to do for Naomi. And here's the reality. If Naomi is going to have a life where she gets back to Bethlehem and something is going to work for her, Ruth is going to have to set her own life aside. Much like we said with Boaz, now we have Ruth, who is that same kind of person, willingly setting aside everything, dying to herself for the good of someone else. If Naomi was going to have a name, if she was going to have a land, a redeemer, Ruth was going to have to give up all of her advantages to make that happen. Look at verse 16. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Now, if you know what this lineage means, you see that all of the pieces have fallen into place. The statement about not being left without a redeemer, the statement we saw a little bit earlier, it's not just a bunch of old women in a Middle Eastern town talking to other women, giving them some kind of hope for the days and weeks ahead. This is a promise for all of mankind, all who look to Christ for life everlasting. Blessed be the Lord indeed who has not left us without a Redeemer. And indeed, His name is renowned in Israel, but not just in Israel, not just in the fields and the valleys and the streams and the rivers and the oceans and the mountains of this world. It's also in all of the galaxies of space and in the furthest reaches of the universe. His name is renowned in this universe, above it and below it, in the highest of the heavens and even into the furthest and deepest and darkest pits of hell. His great name is renowned forever and ever and ever. His name is above every name. And at the mention of his name, every knee will bow on earth and in heaven and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so indeed, as the text says, blessed be the Lord. We don't only hear about the Redeemer We don't just know about this Redeemer in passing. We don't just read about Him redeeming in the Bible, as great as that is, but we know Him. 
We communicate with him. We commune with him. And indeed, just as Naomi's grandson would do for her, far greater is the promise to us that we shall have a restorer of life, that we shall have a nourisher into our old age, onto death, into life everlasting. And his name is Jesus Christ. The true Redeemer is the child, yes, who was born in Bethlehem that came from the family line of this child who was born in Bethlehem. The true Redeemer comes directly from Naomi's family line, from this Redeemer. That's the importance of all these names. All of these details that the writer goes to, great lengths to explain this family line, but he gives us a quick summary of the most important names. He points them out before he lists them. There at the end of verse 17, he gives us the point. Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. And we all know that David is the one who God made a covenant with, that his throne would stand forever, and upon his throne would sit the once and future king who would reign forever and ever. It is from this family line of David that Jesus would come into the world. So what we see from this remarkable story, look, this was written long before Jesus ever came into the world, which makes it even more amazing. But think about it this way. If there is no Ruth and Boaz, there is no David. And if there is no David, there is no Jesus. So you see, you see how the Lord orchestrates all of this in a way that we would have never seen it coming? We never would have seen this coming. They never saw it coming. The providence of God isn't just great or wonderful or amazing. It is astounding. It is mind-bogglingly astounding. It is from this family line, this, this small story in the, middle, in the middle of this small place that nobody would have thought of that the greatest man who was a God-man came to walk this earth and to live in fulfillment of God's holy law and to die a sinner's death in our place came from them. It is astounding that from this family we have a savior, a savior who comes like Ruth, leaving the Father's throne above, so free, so infinite His grace as we sing. And like Boaz, He not only paid your debt, but He reaches out and He unites with you so that all of His wealth becomes yours. That's what Ephesians tells us, right? All of the heavenly blessings, they're ours. Not in the future, but here and now we have all of the heavenly blessings that God has given to us. And so like Boaz, he has redeemed us and all that is his is ours. He is your flesh and blood. Why? Well, see, if Jesus came and just simply said, well, live a good life, he didn't have to become flesh and blood, did he? If the only thing he had to say was we just need to live better lives, he could have just sort of passed on that message. Here's how to live a good life. Go and do that. He had to become flesh and blood because he didn't save us by telling us to just live better. He came by living a good life himself, by living a perfect life, by being our head, being the author and perfecter of our faith, being our substitute, being our mediator, being our redeemer. But you see, even as great as Ruth and Boaz are, 
even as exemplary as they are in their lives. This is one of the few examples, by the way, that we have in Scripture of people whose stories weren't riddled with all kinds of shady, sinful stuff. That's most everybody in the Bible because everyone in the Bible is like you and I. But even as great as they are, Ruth and Boaz, they're like Israel's power couple. Let's get that straight. Right? They are the godliest couple in town. But for you and I to become a Christian is not to say, I'm going to try and be more like Ruth and Boaz. No. To become a Christian is to say there was only one who truly went outside the gate, who left the greater name, the greatest name, who descended the furthest, who became truly an immigrant in a strange land, the immigrant of all immigrants who was the most despised of all who are despised, who was the least deserving of condemnation but received the most, and he received it all to give to us. Jesus didn't say, be like Ruth or be like Naomi, or be like Boaz. Jesus showed through his actions, just like these people did, by saying, I throw away my life so that you can have one. Jesus looks at us and says, I won't even let my death part me from you. Remember, Ruth told Naomi, I'm with you unto death. Jesus says, even unto death and beyond, I am with you. You will be with me forever and ever. I will die in order that you never have to be separated from me. Here's the one who's greater than Ruth. Here's the one who's greater than Boaz. And so when you see Jesus, you can say, he left his father's throne above. And when you see Jesus and Boaz, you can sing the rest of the hymn. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. You see, now because of him, I don't have to, nor should I seek to live upon any righteousness that I can provide through my good deeds, through my hard work, because my good deeds and hard work aren't going to satisfy God. Because his standard is perfect. It is only Christ who could and did fulfill that law. And so we don't live upon our own righteousness. We don't live upon the righteousness of Ruth or Boaz. No matter what, if we do, we will fall flat on our faces and we will fail. The reality is, if you're not in Christ, you may be trying to live the best life you can live right here and now. You may hear about Ruth and Boaz and you might say, well, they were just good people and I'm a good person. You're hoping that God will just sort of give you the directions to live life like them. And even if you're a believer, so often we sort of default into that kind of thinking, don't we? That kind of life that we want to live. You know, by God's grace, I just want to go out and be a good person. And we really convince ourselves unknowingly that that's how we're thinking. If God is going to love me and I'm going to remain as his child, I just need to go try to be a better person. What are we doing? We're living on our own works. We're looking to our works as justification for God's love for us instead of looking to Christ, instead of looking to the cross. Unless we see that Ruth and Boaz aren't in the Bible to teach us to be like them on our own, and Ruth and Boaz are pointing us to the real Redeemer, unless we've seen that He has covered us with His garment and He is ravished with our beauty, 
And all of the spiritual wealth that he has is now ours in the sight of the Father that we are absolutely loved and absolutely accepted here and now until we can see that for ourselves, until we have that kind of joy, until we have that kind of peace, we'll never actually live like Ruth or Boaz in any substantial way. We'll never live like them at all because we can't apart from Christ. Dear friends, it doesn't matter who you are. It really doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how marginal you are or what others think of you. It doesn't matter what kind of failure you've been in this life. It doesn't matter. The message of the story is the incredible providence of God and the overwhelming glory of His grace. Think of this too. Naomi had a son. I'm not talking about her two sons who died. I'm talking about this son. She lost all of her children, but what does the text tell us that Naomi was given a son? The message of the book of Ruth is not that if you trust God, God will give you absolutely everything you want. That's not the message. Now, the message of the book of Ruth, look at what Ruth said and even what Naomi did. If you give up your definition of what the good life is and give it to God and say, God, do with me what you want to do with me, he will take the life that you have and he will give you a new one, but it's not going to look the same. It won't be the same definition. It won't be what you think it's going to be, but it's going to be far better. And you're going to discover things you never thought you would discover. Ruth, by trusting God, brought more wealth and more children into Naomi's life. Naomi has a child. No, biologically she didn't have a child, but she did have a child. If you are willing to give up your life to Christ like Ruth did, like Naomi did, he will give it back and not in the ways you expect. Your life would be greater than having seven sons. Praise be to God who has not left us alone. He is our true redeemer. And you know what the greatest part of this is? This story all points to Jesus who is pointing us forward to the greater life that is yet to come in the resurrection of these mortal bodies. This story points forward to that time that time when there shall no more be any weeping and mourning and pain. For the former things of this life will have passed away. And do you know what that means, brother and sister? I know that some of you here this morning are having a hard time. I know that. We've got some really hard news from people that we love and are close to and are deeply saddened by all of it today. Some of you have challenges and trials and heartbreak that you're here with this morning, and we feel the sting of this broken world, and it weighs on our hearts. It puts that lump in our throat when we wake up in the morning. And it's in tears beyond our eyes and pain in our hearts. But you know what we can remember this morning? That we learn from God's Word this great truth that He has shown us throughout this book, that He is faithful, and the best is yet to come. That is the unshakable truth in this life for every man, every woman, every child who follows the Lord Jesus Christ. You may not know how you're going to get through today. And you might have a sense that the Lord has left you lonely and empty. I can't tell you what tomorrow is going to be like. I don't know. I can't tell you how long the pain will last, how long there will be a struggle, how long things will be difficult, but I can tell you this, the best is yet to come because Jesus, the greatest of all time, 
truly has promised the greatest for us, and he has never fallen short of fulfilling all that he has promised. He is the author and giver of life. Look to him, the light of the world, the bread and water of life, the redeemer that will never leave you and will never forsake you. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you. We thank you for the precious gift of Christ. The precious reminder that we have this morning that the goodness of life is not found in the things that happen here and now. And while we delight in your gifts and we we delight in all the ways that you bless us and, and that we are able to enjoy what we have and what you've provided, Lord, all of it falls short. And we face sin, we face brokenness, we face trials and turmoil and heartbreak and heartache. Many things that come about in our own lives because of our own sin. Because of our own willingness to go our own way apart from what you have commanded. And yet, Lord, we're reminded of still yet a greater day. The day that will come that is filled with everlasting peace and joy, free from sin, free from weeping and mourning, free from pain and death. And so as we look forward to that great day that has been promised to us by our one true Redeemer, I pray, O God, that you help us to know our Redeemer all the more, to walk faithfully with him, to be comforted by him, to be encouraged by him, to know that we are loved by him, even in the midst of our sin, knowing that we are redeemed by him as your people because once you have us, you will not let us go. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us to look to Christ, that we might live life abundantly. I pray for anyone here this morning who does not know Christ that you would bring them to the end of themselves, that they would lay down their lives, that they would pick up their cross, that they would follow Christ. And even though that journey is difficult, it is filled with trials, sometimes very painful trials, sometimes great suffering, far greater is the blessing that awaits Far greater is the promise that is ours from the great promise keeper who has never fallen back on what he has assured us. And so we pray, Lord, that you help us to look to that Redeemer who is Christ forever and ever. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.